Lily Flag Signal, Huntsville History Interview 3, and John O'Brien, and Placemaking. One of the cool things about doing this podcast is that I've gotten exposed to so many new stories, as well as had the opportunity to meet lots of local historians who love sharing their research. Today's episode is an interview with one such historian, John O'Brien. If you followed the show's Instagram, at Lily Flag Podcast, you may have seen a book I reviewed a few months back called Notorious Antebellum North Alabama that discusses some of the weird, the scandalous, and the generally shady events of this area in the first part of the 1800s. John wrote that book, and I definitely recommend you check it out, but he's also done a lot of research into another part of local history, placemaking. John was cool enough to sit down and talk with me over Zoom about the subject, answering my queries on what placemaking is, why there used to be an area called Boogertown, how the early housing authority shaped Huntsville as we know it, and more. And I bet you learned quite a few things. So without further ado, the interview. Welcome to Lily Flag Signal, Huntsville History Podcast, where today I've got a special guest, uh, John O'Brien. So if you'd like to introduce yourself. Uh, hey, I'm John. I do I do local history, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, I've written a book about Huntsville and, or at least Huntsville in the 19th century, and I've done a lot of research into local history. It's kind of my thing. Yeah. That's- so yeah, someday I'm going to have not a local historian on here and no one's going to know what to do. Um, <laughs> some random person. But um, so I've read your uh, draft review thesis as well as your book. I've actually, I've posted about the book on the, on the Instagrams, but um, the- Yeah, I saw it. Thank you. Oh, uh, yeah. I was like, I, I, got, I didn't tag you. I didn't want people to be able to find you, but- um, No, no, I, I got my most recent royalty check and I think there was like a noticeable bump. So- Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah I appreciate that. So in reading your, your thesis as well, um, there's this general theme and also just defining it because some terms that people don't normally use in conversation, you talk about placemaking and growth machine theory, which I've never said in a sentence until this moment. Um, so I wonder if you can kind of just define that for everybody before we get going. So in the kind of like the quick uh, idea of growth machine theory is a place, right? A place is really just I mean, it's it's land, right? That's the basic stuff of it. And then it's a collection of stories that we tell about it. And no place is like fundamentally that much different than any other. You know, you have access to like different natural resources, like, okay, there's a river here. Okay, we've got a mountain, et cetera. Um, but growth machine theory is, it's an idea, it's a way to explain municipal American politics. And it's, people that own land or like are heavily invested in local land are usually the ones pushing narratives uh, about what a special place this is. They're usually overrepresented in city and council in like county governments. Um, And they often are the, they basically are your local boosters. And so most of municipal American politics is just a growth machine coalition, right, which is your local assemblage of these groups. Uh, This is often like local businessmen, real estate developers, whoever owns your media outlet, and they compete with other growth machines around the country for a set, like a finite level of growth. It's actually really interesting. Um, Moloch, when he came up with this in like 1975, he was like, I have a 
I have a formula that's the exact amount of it's it's whatever. Um, and then placemaking is another idea that we get from Molach and urban history and urban sociology. And it goes back to like a place is the stories you tell about it. And so those stories get passed down, association, cultural uh, associations get kind of like wrapped around certain areas. And so that impacts everything from like federal funding to local autonomy to just if they get to get if they get to decide whether or not they're annexed or not like yeah so i looked at that in huntsville and uh i guess that's the end of this sentence yeah oh, and that's i'm glad you mentioned the owning the media when i first did the episode on uh emory pierce i originally was just like wow his house is weird and then it's just like you kind of fall down this rabbit hole so that's why i was i was glad when i re read in in your yours as well about the um like you said, like with the place making that impact. And I also talked about Pratt and company, the just all the rich white dudes <laughs> turn of the 20th century. Yeah. And like, oh, we got to invest, get the Northern investors. Oh, we got to get these companies. Um, and I've kind of talked about like, oh, well, that also involved like child labor, long hours, like that kind of exploitation. But there were other like negative issues as well. And you have the quote, who gets to plan and who gets planned. And I just kind of wanted to just kind of bring that in as a segue. Um, well, especially for the early 20th century, one of the things that one of the things that middle class people nationwide and low and elites wish nationwide were all about doing was how can we perfect our cities and our urban environments and that will somehow make everyone better. I don't know. It there are definitely the city beautiful Sorry, we should probably. <laughs> let oh, me... No, no, you know, yeah, you can go. We yeah. don't have to go chronological. It's one of those. Yeah, that, yeah. You have the city beautiful movement, and honestly, the city beautiful movement in Huntsville starts with Low Mill, right? And so we talk about city beautiful, and it's middle class, primarily uh, progressive politics, and it's primarily for white people. And they're saying we can make a sort of perfect environment. And by having a perfect environment, you can have a better class of citizen in your locality. And it's something that's very attractive, right? Like the earliest uh, ads that they have for the low mill is like, we're going to make a city beautiful out of this cotton mill. And it's like, no, you're not. Like, it's it's a cotton mill. And you're not paying people enough to have to live middle class lives, even if they have nicer houses. So there's these all these assumptions about class and health and who gets to make decisions. And that's really uh, that's a big part of Huntsville history. It's a big part of American history. But if you look at Huntsville is very fascinating because a lot of the public housing and urban renewal that was pushed was pushed by John Sparkman. So he, they actually call him uh, in the Senate, like Mr. Housing and Urban Renewal. And so from roughly the end of the World War II up through the mid 1970s, he, I won't say like authors all of it, but like works on all of these housing bills. So the Housing Act of 1949, Housing Act of 1954. And at the same time, he's interfacing directly with the people in Huntsville. So a lot of these ideas, um, 
that were getting pushed in the city about the mix of public and private investment, the sort of progressive politics that everyone involved had. And when we say progressive, we don't want to think 21st century progressive. You want to think like 20th century progressive movement, which is once again, it's Pratt, it's uh, Hutchins, it's a lot of the sort of very famous people in Huntsville and they're going, how can we make society better? But we're going to like keep a lot of the riffraff out of the vote, out of access to power. In that way, Alabama really was one of the most uh, progressive, and I say that with air quotes, kind of states of the 20th century, because we were very good at locking poor whites out of power, very good at locking like black people out of power. And so you ended up with this sort of middle class and up land owning sort of republic. I don't know. It's a weird place. It reminds me of if you've ever seen like the silent movie Metropolis, where all the workers live underground in like not quite caves. And then yes. like, I'm talking, it, honestly, read it, reading everything about this, like I just kept thinking of that movie, which I realized like the worst pop culture reference is a hundred year old silent movie, but it, right. it made me think of that, which I mean, time, time period, it does fit with this, but the idea of like, you know, poor people, again, air quotes, I realize you can't hear me on a podcast or you can't see me, but uh, the poor people couldn't be a thing in a successful city. And I just kind of wanted to bring in, I guess, prejudice prejudices in general because we had like the Montesano Hotel and all of these you know health and wellness ideas also and then you think of the living conditions in like a mill village which were you know very real um, smallpox yeah yeah the, uh, yeah which that's the the quote that I think my favorite quote from that I sent you this beforehand but the uh quote the the mill villages and suburbs of West Huntsville with their proximity to the Huntsville and sickly white populations challenge notions about material progress and white supremacy in a way that rural outbreaks of smallpox never could thus they had to be managed right end, end quote um I just want to make sure because I, I think that I assume everybody's not going to read the thesis but I want to make sure that quote got got in there um unless you're listening and you're one of the people who reads theses in which case I guess congrats yeah the and I guess in that regard of that separation there you mentioned as well like people in West Huntsville like during this, this time didn't they weren't treated as you know valid Huntsville citizens so they had their own mindset of well then we don't think of ourselves as part of Huntsville and especially the annexing. And I just kind of wanted to, I said, bring in that, like how that was kind of evidenced. So it's really fascinating because early on uh, you have Huntsville and then you have all of these industrial communities around it and in East Huntsville. And I, you know, my mini thesis was supposed to be like 25, 30 pages. It's almost 50. I didn't have time to put all of the research that I put in there, um, but I would I would love to expand this out to another book. East Huntsville, around the Dallas Mill area, there were a lot more sort of middle class suburbs. So even those mill villages were able to be kind of folded in. Right? I talked very briefly about how the people around Dallas Mill, they uh, local real estate companies, really went after them and were like, "Hey, do you want to do you want to buy?" your house. And they were like, all right, yeah, I guess payment plans are great. Um, in West Huntsville, there was much less of that up until the 1950s. And so 
1956, the Alabama state legislature actually redrew the boundaries of Huntsville, like redrew the borders. And this is because, I mean, they were able, the city fathers or whatever in Huntsville, the aristocracy, growth machine, whatever you want to call them, uh, were able to say, hey, we have this missile program now. And if we have a really poor area right next to this missile program, that's going to look bad. It could potentially undermine, I don't know, like, I think they just wanted the land and they wanted to sort out the people there. And they were willing to say a lot of things in order to get it. Uh, there was an effort in 1953 for annexation, but it got like it got turned down uh, going all the way back to 1911. There were efforts to annex West Huntsville and every time voters in the city or municipality, it wasn't ever really officially a city. It was kind of like an understood area, but every time voters turned them down. And so they had to be forcibly taken over by the city of Huntsville. Uh, it's, I think it was Robert Eslick was the one he was serving on the city council, but he was also a member of the uh, Madison County Commission, or sorry, he, Madison County delegation to the Alabama State Legislature, and he was the one who introduced the bill. So, yeah, yeah, they they said no too many times, and they just took over. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason is uh, one of the main reasons they were like, "Hey, we don't want to do this," is you know they didn't want to pay all the extra taxes that they would have to have for like garbage removal and sewerage and all this. And they were like, we're, we're fine. We've for the amount of community that we want, we have it over here. We're paying the amount of taxes that we would like. We're good. And there was also a sort of like local patriotism developing, you know, people were starting to invest in West Huntsville businesses, not, in businesses in Huntsville and they just happened to live in West Huntsville, but a separate identity was forming. And that that's potentially also dangerous. That's I say and I make fun of the um like the idea of like, oh we went from watercrest to rockets. Like you can't also have farmers like that that thing. And kind of seeing with this the um with that kind of juxtaposition wanted to bring in the idea of booger towns. Um and this, they said that this divide and because these, the communities had names other than just the West Huntsville one. And some of them I had not heard until, until we, like Brogtown. Um, and of course, I guess to lead into that, the, uh, there's a certain red light district of Huntsville. You had your notorious Alabama, North, eh, notorious antebellum North Alabama, sorry, book about crimes in that time period. And so when I saw red light district, I was like, oh, okay, well, more yeah crimes and wanted to kind of lead into that. No, absolutely. So the area in Blunt Alley uh, is one of the, so there's an area that is Blunt Alley, and in the 1870s, I think, is when it gets kind of laid out, and from there on, by 1890 or so, you start, it, it gets this connotation of being a place that's inherently sinful. There's, I had to cut it, there was a Dewdrop Saloon was nearby, and so, if you have you ever heard of the dewdrop? Yes. Yeah, so I don't know, uh, listener wise. I say if you want to go ahead and explain it. Like I'm sitting here nodding, but oh no, no, yeah, yeah, you you, you go off. They they listen to this. To, you tell them about the dewdrop for <laughs> oh, a bit. Oh, yeah, I just I know more about like just reputationally that um, I guess putting it nicely, that is not something the city wanted. Um, 
Yeah. Which is true of most of the things in, in Blunt Alley, which by the way is spelled like Blunt County. There's a silent O in there, just in case anyone's Googling it. Um, we have to always question our sources when it comes to a newspaper editor saying, hey, this one place is inherently really, you know, riddled with crime and sinful and it's awful. And it's like, okay, that's happening all over the city. Like, what are you talking about? Um, and people were just like, this has to go. So it burned down at some point. Uh, the guy who owned it, like, murdered a guy and skipped town. And then I think some brothers from the UK bought it. Doesn't matter. But the dewdrop becomes so associated with this one area and the other stuff that's happening around Blunt Alley becomes so associated with this one area that I argue that it kind of, even after it got cleaned out in the late 18, I mean, sorry, 1910s, early 1920s, and you see this kind of like dissipation, right? Uh, it just remained like the overall I'm so like sorry. The atmosphere. Yeah, like the, of, yeah. the association, the place making, the place was made. So the association of like criminality and sin and awfulness with this one section, even after it was gone, remained in the popular imagination. And so then after that, you get Brogtown or Brogland Town. And that is uh, where we get the Brogland Creek from. And that's the same spot, basically. Right. And or the Brogland branch of Pinhook Creek. And it's, it's not called Brogland until like 1950. And it's after this community is removed. And uh, so Brogtown is there. And that is, it forms around the store of William Brogland, who is a landowner and merchant and kind of realtor. It, he's, he's a fascinating guy. He goes from grocery business, right? Which is if you were a up-and-coming or intelligent merchant in the deep south at the time that was your go-to business was i'm going to sell people food and so you see grocers all throughout the census records and then in 1925 19 early 1920s uh there's this massive real estate boom that goes across north alabama because henry ford is like i want to buy up these nitrate plants in muscle shoals and William Broglin is immediately like, okay, yes, now's the time. And so he starts buying and flipping land. He's investing in um, gas stations. He's doing all of these like very cutting edge kind of like things for the time, right? Like it's the 1920s. There's not a lot of gas stations, right? Cars are just becoming a very popular thing. And so it's interesting because he's he's very much like I'm gonna I'm gonna become one of these like big names in the county. He's even a returning officer for a lot of elections, right? So he is elected in West Huntsville or Western Huntsville to oversee elections, things like that. And he just never managed to get big enough for his name to be associated with something like fancy, like Pratt. So he's the same kind of guy. He's the same kind of ambition. He just he ends up become his name ends up becoming associated with the slum yeah um and this is so the slum the or impoverished community you know i don't i don't know. there were shacks the slum at the time but now right, we have right. better yeah yeah now we have yeah. better phrasing and i mean we should also keep in mind like some of these areas like i talk about in the paper um 
a lot of the a lot of the housing in Boogertown was dilapidated, but only 20% was considered, which is still a fifth, you know, that's still more than you probably would want, but only 20% was considered unlivable. Right. And so there were definitely like there were livable houses in these communities. And you even see uh, housing authority officials when they're in Senate testimony going like, oh, hey, we can get all we all these folks can get like Section 221 loans. Right. They make too much money to be in public housing. We just want the land their house is on. Their house is like mostly okay. It could probably be fixed. They can get a loan to move. No problem. And yeah. With definitely no ulterior motives. Nope. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's they, it's a, I realized about halfway through the paper that I wasn't actually writing a story about the housing authority because the current housing authority, like everyone up there's great. The staff is dedicated to making sure that there's, you know, good housing or adequate housing for people. Like, I don't want to impugn the current Huntsville Housing Authority right. at all. The when it started was during a period in nationwide where we were like, as a country, we were like, we're going to clean out slums. We're going to use that to fight communism. We're going <clears> to, <throat> there, I'll get into that in a sec. We're going to use that to fight communism. We're going to do this, that, and the other. We're going to redevelop and make everything into like these beautiful middle-class suburbs and we're going to be a utopia and it was like very it was shockingly like utopian thinking for a lot of these guys right um i may have gotten off track oh no but <laughs> i was i was actually going to ask about the um well i was going to bring up the, the the idea of like booger town that was not a unique Huntsville thing so I said you already went into that the um because there was the map I think before World War II there were at least like nine other booger mm -hmm. towns in the eastern U.S. like this wasn't just us and the phrasing was not just Huntsville not that that makes it better but right. like yeah this was a larger movement than just some people in Alabama that was probably one of the most interesting things I've found is there's a booger town in Gastonia North Carolina there's a boogerville in Columbus Georgia there was a booger town in Athens Right. There's a booger town in um Peggy, my baby's being very vocal. Oh. There's a I don't know if y'all can hear that. She's like, ah, dad's talking. There's I mean, there's a booger town in um in Sevierville or outside of Pigeon Forge. Yeah. Right? Like there's one in Atumwa. The first, the earliest I found was like in the 1890s. Atumwa was an island. The earliest I found was like in the 1890s in northern New York. Right. And so there's just as mills are closing or as industrial villages and sites are um, operating nationwide, areas that are kind of run down outside of local control. And yeah, just they fit a specific. Uh, I call it a toponym because that's what it is. But they they hit they check off enough boxes that everyone's like, oh, that's a booger town, right? Brandon. In the booger town in Huntsville, there are no mentions of it before 1942. Yeah, the the conditions existed, but the naming convention. Right, and so it's actually very interesting because after in the late 50s, up until the late 50s. People called it Dixie Village. 
saw that one, which less negative sounding connotations. I just kind of switched over for the same area. And yeah, they called it Dixie Street or Dixie Village. And then um, there are scattered references to a booger town in Huntsville, but it really picks up in the late 50s. And this is when the guys on the housing authority and Reese Amos, who succeeded J.E. Pierce as the editor of Huntsville Times. I mean, you know that, but just in case other people don't. Oh, yeah. Listen um, to the Times episode. <laughs> right. Hey, plugged it. All right. Uh, and Reese Amos, all these guys are like, we need to go after, we need to go after Bogertown. And so one of the things that they bring up is the West Huntsville Businessmen's Club specifically asked for this area to be redeveloped. The West Huntsville Businessmen's Club did not call it Boogertown. They called it the Dixie Street, uh, Dixie Street area. And yeah, so they used a national idea, right? A, a term that if you used it, everyone around would be like, oh yeah, I know what that is. And they kind of applied it to a section of the city. Uh, one of the things I mentioned is even in the early, um, one of the early sub suburbs, I, my mind just blanked. One of the earliest suburbs uh, in West Huntsville, Hawthorne Avenue is on it. Let me, uh, golly, whatever. They talk about Brogtown. And this is like 1948. This is after the first instances of Boogertown have already appeared in the paper. They talk about, we don't want to be Brogtown. According to the Huntsville Times, these people are living next to Boogertown and they're not even mentioning it in their op-ed. Right. So it's very much a constructed identity. And speaking of the changes, I guess we've got to eventually touch on the can of worms that is the housing authority. Again, historically, not the modern one. Very different. Um, just for anyone who's listening, we're specifically talking about first half of the 20th century. Um, yeah. And that that idea of, um, oh, we should just start this group to improve things. That's you know, what we need to do. And that, that kind of that line between treating people as charity cases versus just inherently bad place, you know, rather than just, oh, we can go in and help people versus we need to bulldoze this and kind of right. that transition of thought. Um, well, so the, the housing authority in Huntsville was founded in 1941 to build uh, defense housing projects. And uh, this is where we get Benford Court, Redstone Park, Right, some of the like very early names in in Huntsville's kind of like urban renewal history, um, but those were federal federal programs. So someone from like the Public Housing Administration office in Atlanta came down and was like, "I like this spot. This is how much money you're getting. Build it." And so even even at the height of World War II, you see um, housing authority commissioners being like, hey, we would like maybe a little more local control. We know the situation better than you do, which are all very valid arguments, but they also were like, we're gonna make sure that Benford Court is made out of bricks because it'll have a higher resale value later on, right? That there's always a kind of like inherent profit motive in there, but, um, it's not until 49, 1949, and you get the end of World War II and the start of like kind of new, a new housing vision in the country. And uh, after that, it switches from defense housing to slum removal. 
nationwide. It's like, we're going to do slum removal. <clears throat> and so this allowed growth machine, growth machine coalitions all over the U.S. to be like, yes, awesome. We're going to go after this impoverished community or this community that's, I mean, that's a lot. They're this kind of mixed use community or community where it's not just all one type of people living together. And so that's, that's what they did. And I mean, they would po they would put photos of shacks in the in the in the Huntsville Times. So if you go and look at all of the old photos, it's it's shacks and it looks awful. And a lot of those, uh, especially in Boogertown, down the street, there were there were okay houses, right? Like, but yeah, yeah, if you've got a motive to try to get something happen, you're not going to show the the mediocre or above mediocre ones that. Right. I mean, these were not, you know, wealthy areas by any means, but like they still had a right to exist. A lot of these people got chased out. They had to, a lot of them moved to Madison, actually, because it was still a primarily rural community. So when I was looking at the relocation stuff, you know, a lot of the people from Boogertown were basically dispersed into the countryside and they were like, I, not our problem anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> I was going to ask where everybody moved to that yeah, farmland back when Madison was farms. Um, way I back. The cows. Yeah. And you mentioned urban renewal. So I have another interview that I'm going to do later this season that I've got recorded hasn't come out yet. But um, Chauncey Robinson is doing uh, Mud Creek Archive, um, trying to kind of reconstruct church streets, Black business district, the people that were there, businesses, all of that. Um, and I kind of want to discuss the city planning side of things with regards to urban renewal urban renewal downtown as well because like the surrounding like the former mill villages all of that but how, what impact did it have on like the downtown if, if any like with these same groups um like do you know much about like the church street um black business district like is that all the same people making those decisions to tear that oh, area yeah, down yeah yeah i, was like, no, that, yeah, I guess yeah, kind 110 of yeah um the housing authority the commissioners uh, that served were on there for like 30 plus years. Oh, okay. So it's all the same dudes. Yeah. So it's, um, <laughs> it's some familiar names. There's uh, H.E. Monroe. So there's a, there's Monroe Street downtown. Uh, <laughs> there's Herbert Johnson, who Johnson Towers is named after. Um, there's Oscar Mason, who worked at the furniture store. Yeah, uh, all the uh, usual yeah. suspects. Right. And so, yeah, these guys, these guys were all hanging out together prior. They were all very good. They were all close. Uh, they were all in the same social clubs. I mentioned that in the book. I mean, yeah. not the book, in the mini thesis. And yeah, they, those were the same people. They, there was the Heart of Huntsville Urban Renewal Plan, I believe, is, uh, is that one. And it was our largest, obviously. I think it had four sections. So, yeah. The uh, and see that that area is still, I guess, seems like it's kind of in a weird transitional. Like there were some, I remember growing up at least, like there were some very clear, like that is a vacant lot. Something just got torn down there, like that. And yeah. I'm not that old. Um, I'm I'm not I'm I'm turned thirty this year. Like so, this is still very recent memory, like uh, stuff for a lot of people in, in town. Yeah. Um, how painfully obvious were the parallels like looking back in history painfully obvious um from Huntsville's 
failures and successes, and again, depending on who you were, changed what was a failure versus success with, say, what Pratt and company were doing in um, like turn of the century 1900s to make town look nice. And that's, again, air quotes, versus what was happening in the they prep for the space race and that that boom. Like, were there a lot of, like, did they learn from each other? It was a direct continuation. It, yeah, okay. uh, all of the housing authority commissioners were young men during the progressive era. So they would have all probably been to the same. I mean, some of them did like go to the same Ashford Todd. That was the fourth one. Sorry. Did go to the same events as like Pratt and um, Wellman and et cetera. I mean, even the attorney for the housing authority for so long charles shaver his father was a mill manager for the row mills which is the area that boogertown turned into so yeah okay all same people same club yeah. essentially to, yes. yeah 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 that's is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to make sure to, to mention? Um, I guess well, I'm gonna I'm gonna always ask my my go-to question in a sec about who you'd want to meet from from history, but it, with with any of the other topics, is there anything that you that was like super interesting you want to make sure everybody has heard about? Any... One of the things I would probably want to touch on is history is like history can only ever exist in our collective imagination, right? And so it takes a lot of takes a lot of dialogue, a lot of thinking through things, a lot of research, a lot of arguments, and it's a long, weird, drawn out process. And it's most often shaped by people with the most time and resources. And so if you ever, yeah, that's really it. Like history is often, it's a, it's a, often a tool that people can deploy, uh, people look for usable histories or usable pasts a lot. And you should probably, not you, but the kind of like great collective us should probably sit down and talk to each other if we wanna talk about making a usable past. Also donate to your local archives, be it time, money, effort, whatever you can do, uh, help them out, yeah. And so, yeah, that's been a thing I've found with researching stuff because I take we're about I'm recording this before the season two break, but that's that's why I take like a few months off is just so I can go you know talk to people and whatnot because can't do a week an episode and actually do all of that research in that week. Um, that does not how this show <laughs> show works because it no there's yeah. a lot. Um, I, I mean, with content, right? With good content it's not something that you can just like whip up really right. quick and people. Yeah. The amount of people who have come and been like, John, do you know this random thing about this thing? And then, you know, I'm like, all right, some, let me do more research for you. And it's, it's a lot. Uh, yeah. I will say that does not mean that I don't wait until the night before to actually record the stuff, but the script has been being written for a long <laughs> right. time. I definitely right. record most of them the Sunday night before they come out, like just in case I find something. Um, but uh, I guess my, so my go-to question for everybody is if you could meet or, inter or interview um, anyone in like Huntsville's history, who and why? Um, and it doesn't have to be like one person, but right. is there anyone who immediately comes to mind? Gosh, you know, maybe the Colbert's. Or uh, so 
you you put Chikashi Agni, you know, this is this is Chickasaw land. Mm-hmm. Um the they were we made we mainly think of them as being closer maybe to Muscle Shoals, but like when this was all still part of the Chickasaw Nation, like they would have been moving in and out and around here. There were fairies. John Cashin would be super cool. Um James Gillespie Bernie. There's there's a whole slew of people, right? Yeah. Uh yeah. When I'll say that's that's my my last question for you. So if there's nothing else, I'll say I'll let you go. And thanks for thanks for coming on. And yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hopefully this was uh useful. Oh yeah. That's it for today. Huge thanks again to John O'Brien for taking the time to talk with me about his research and thesis entitled Blunt Broglin Booger, Placemaking, the Housing Authority, and West Huntsville. If you haven't already, I definitely recommend getting a copy of his book, Notorious Antebellum North Alabama. Seriously, it's a fun and interesting read. And as always, you can find Lily Flag Signal on Facebook and Instagram at Lily Flag Podcast. That's L-I-L-Y-F-L-A-G-G Podcast with two G's in flag. Thank you to the show patrons who make this show possible, including Allison, Emily, Lauren, Hector, Jennifer, and Bill. If you want to join in and have your name mentioned in a cow-themed podcast, check out patreon.com slash lilyflagpodcast. Again, two G's in flag. Until next time, read a map, cite your sources, and I'll talk to you soon.